Hello, everyone, and happy one-year anniversary of The Fuqua Show. We're so thankful for our guests and our listeners from all over the world who've been with us this past year. Thank you so, so much. Without you, none of this would be possible. This episode is a recording of our first-ever live show from a few weeks ago. We interviewed second-year MBA student Brian Wong, and the topic was reinventing yourself which Brian has done many times as a youth tennis player, a social worker, a real estate entrepreneur, an environmentalist, an investment banker. This recording is a bit edited, and because we filmed it live, the mics picked up some external noise. But Brian's life story is so interesting, and we hope you find it as inspiring as we did. Welcome to the Fuqua Show live show. Who's excited again? Let's get pumped up. The Fuqua Show, where we hear about the stories, the lessons, and the passions of the Team Fuqua community here at Duke University's Fuqua School of Business. I'm Thomas Cheng, and today I'm with a very boring, average, ordinary classmate, Brian Wong. Let's give it up one more time for Brian. In all seriousness, I do want to give Brian a big thank you for doing this. It takes a lot of courage to share your story in the studio for the podcast, much less in front of peers and in front of a live audience. So I want to thank you again. I want to thank you all for coming. Thank you all for listening and for engaging with us today. Today, we're talking about reinventing yourself, which, as Mitchell said, is probably the biggest reason why a lot of us came here to business school. And Brian has done so throughout his life as a Hong Konger, Canadian, American, internationally competitive tennis player, social worker, environmentalist, real estate entrepreneur, investment banker. Am I missing anything? I don't know. We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to start with the big question that's on everybody's mind, and that is, what is your hair care routine? How do you get your hair (laughs) looking so good? Oh, gosh. So much pressure. (laughs) So pretty basic. I mean, shampoo, conditioner. The one odd thing is I do use a little apple cider vinegar. Mm-hmm. Every day? Uh, yeah. Dilute apple cider vinegar after conditioner. And has your hair always looked like this? So it's been long since uh, high school. And what was it before? Oh, uh, like yours. Really? Yeah. Can you imagine? <laughs> are, there, are there photos anywhere that we can Somewhere see? Somewhere hidden. I don't know where. Okay. Well, I mean, that's... <laughs> Going, going back to the theme of reinventing yourself, right? Your style, but also your career, who you are as a person over the years. Let's maybe start at the beginning, and yeah. I know that family is a big part of your life. Yeah. Can you share a bit about your family? Yeah, family, yeah, it's huge for me. So, you know, I'm an immigrant family. I come from two parts. My dad's side is all from Hong Kong. My mom's side is from Malaysia. My mom is adopted, so she's Chinese Malaysian, but ended up staying there. And so that's kind of like our roots, and we are just yeah, pretty simple, like uh, immigrant family, scrappy, moved to the West, really for opportunity. And so, yeah, so I was born in Canada after my parents immigrated there. Uh, and then we went back when I was five for, at that point, an opportunity for my dad's side. And then really, I guess we'll probably get into a bit more. We came to the U.S. also as kind of a, a means for opportunity as well. So. And so during your childhood, I know that tennis was a big part of your life. Yeah. How did you even get into that to begin with? Yeah, I think, you know, there, there are some funny photos of when I was, you know, two or three, apparently, just like begging my parents to come along with them. And I think my dad was moderately athletic. 
never played college sports or anything, but was just active. And he's retired now and he plays tennis like six days a week. But this goes all the way back to when I was a kid, I was just kind of tag along. And then it got serious. It turned a corner very quickly. I started playing in just after school kind of programming. By the time I was five, I think I was playing three, four times a week. And then by the time I was six, seven, I was playing five, six days a week. And yeah, so that was a pretty key part of like childhood. Would you say that when it came to pro tennis or competitive tennis that you chose it or did it choose you? Uh, yeah, I think it chose me. I did not. From zero to five was in Canada, five to 10 was in Hong Kong. And that era, I don't think I ever knew a world. I don't have memories of my childhood outside of tennis. And so it's very much pretty central to, to that part of life. And so how do you even get into the competitive yeah. world? So in Hong Kong, I guess maybe I started in Canada, but then it really picked up in Hong Kong. Started, like I mentioned, went to a bunch of clinics, started practicing a lot more, played a lot more competitively. But Hong Kong is a bit smaller of a tennis community. And so my dad was looking for something uh, a little more competitive to go to. And so he sent me for a summer to Florida to test it out. So if you don't know much about the tennis world, Florida is like central. There are a few very key tennis academies down there. And so he sent me there for a summer just to test it out to see if, you know, it would be something that he wanted to send me to like long term. And so what was started off as just a summer, just a few months later, he was like, hey, you're going to go there for a whole year. So he sent me when I was 10 to Florida to play tennis, basically. And so it sounds like it wasn't really your decision. But no. over time, did you end up becoming more motivated by the sport? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, it was just like kind of the... the the center point of life. It was as a kid, I was expected to do well academically, but also do well in tennis. And I think over time that shifted to more focusing on the tennis piece. And, you know, when you're 10 and you move from Hong Kong to Florida, I don't think you have a concept of how insane that is, that you're moving halfway around the world to, you know, for a competitive sport. At that point, I'm competing at the local level. So again, I think for folks that are familiar with tennis, there's usually folks play tennis like in their high school or their middle school and then if you play competitively their leagues in the u.s it's called the usta u.s tennis association and you kind of move up into playing into regional events state events national events and so i kind of went through that whole cycle eventually moving up to the international level and so yeah it was never quite something that i maybe chose but i just didn't know of a world like outside of that well at the international level Tell us more about what your life was like there, because I remember you telling me that you traveled to 35 countries for tennis. Yeah, it was pretty wild. Uh, and that was a pretty quick flip of the switch. I was doing well at the state, national levels, and there was a jump when I was, remember I was about 14 or 15, that the decision was made to switch over to the international level. So this is called the ITF, International Tennis Federation. And it was, it was wild. Uh, I think I was 14, so I would have been a freshman. I still remember after my first semester as a freshman, I just flipped a switch. I stopped going to school and I just started traveling. And I remember my 15 year, 15th yeah, age year, uh, I was LA country 26 weeks out of 52 weeks, just traveling for tournaments. And it's not as glamorous as it sounds. We all see, you know, like Wimbledon, US Open, all these folks traveling in the world. Before folks get to that, there is a very humble version of that at the junior level, at the amateur level. And uh, so I was basically on that, like touring the world, playing these little tournaments. But yeah, 35 countries. 
I wouldn't suggest that as a way to travel. Um, <laughs> you know, I saw mostly airports, tennis courts, and uh, some things in between. But yeah, it was, a, it was definitely not the most standard high school experience. Well, I want to dig into that a little bit more because you said you stopped going to school. Yep. So after freshman year or part of freshman year, you just didn't go to school anymore? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yes. You call it in a high school dropout. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so after that first semester, it was the focus was on uh, the tennis career. And, you know, we were technically enrolled, but we did not, I did not see my classmates until high school graduation after that. And so some of us who were at this academy, we basically did, we finished, you know, tests and assignments, whatever, in our spare time. I pretty much crammed like a whole school year in you know, a couple weeks on occasion, but the rest of the year, this was a full-time job. You know, this was a, an eight to six kind of a thing every day and traveling and training. Typically two tennis sessions a day, another additional one or two conditioning sessions a day. So it's pretty full-time at that point. And was the hope to go pro? Oh yeah, undoubtedly. I think in that scenario, most of my friends and I, I think the way we were maybe trained, it's that at that point, I think landing in college would have been looked at as a failure, like in terms of college athletics and not going pro. Wow. So that's changed a lot since. It's much different now, which I think is a good thing. But at that point, yeah, that was the, the path for most of us was do as little school as possible, train as much as possible. If you get a high school degree, get it a year early so that you can graduate year early at 17 so that you can spend a year or two testing out the professional tour before if you have to cop, cop out and go to college. So that was kind of the, the culture. And for you, when did you decide or when did you know that that wasn't going to be the path for you going pro? Yeah, I think that was difficult. That was a slow evolution. I, I enjoyed my time on the court and training and traveling less and less for sure. And I think you'd see that in like my results. I, I think back and realize and see there were kind of up years and down years, and it was strongly correlated to how, I think, just how my whole situation was. And I think in my final year, it was a bad year. And within that year, I ended up having a really serious injury as well. Like I broke my ankle, ligaments torn, bones broken. Yeah, and so I was off the court for a good six months. And I ended up using that, you know, most people would be devastated. And a little bit of me was quite happy that I had such a terrible injury to give me an excuse to exit. Because after I came back, after physical therapy and everything, I just did not have the willpower, I think, to come back fully. You know, at that point, six months, nine months doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're 16, 17, competing at an international level, that is an enormous setback. You know, I've pretty much lost like a full year and that, that comeback's pretty difficult. So I just didn't have it in me. And I think I, I knew at that point I wanted out, but like we've been kind of talking about, that was my entire world. So I had no idea how to exit. And it sounds like that was probably the first time you really had to reinvent yourself into something new. Yeah. What did you do from that chapter? Yeah, so if you're tracking, right, so I'm about 17, right? And there is a gap before college, right? And I didn't go back to school. <laughs> That's one thing I didn't do. Um, you know, my family is going through some difficult times at the moment. My parents are separating. So there wasn't quite the wherewithal to understand, like, is he actually quitting or is he just faking this out? Is he going to come back and all this stuff? So there's a bit of confusion around that. So I'm not really doing much for a year. 
I think my, my maybe parents, coaches, others were holding out that I would come back. I was maybe just stubborn, like, watch me here do nothing as a teenager <laughs> kind of a thing. So I think that was kind of the gap for, for college. And in addition to that, I think my mom was pushing me to just do something with my life. I think at that point, you're a teenager. There's a little bit of guilt. I don't think I was fully aware of it, but there was a bit of a guilt in terms of your family, you moved you halfway around the world and there's clearly some big sacrifices made and you have basically just bombed the project, right? In terms of the whole family. So like, what are you going to do about it? And so I think at that point I was predominantly raised by my mom and her thing from the beginning when we moved to the, to the US, she did not have a work visa, but she was always a giver. And so when my dad asked her to bring us over to the US, cause I was just 10, she went with it without any, any qualms. I thought looking back, I think that's like wild commitment. You have two young kids and you're going to fly halfway around the world, move there and not have a work visa. Okay. And so from there on, she was volunteering like at my school without a job for like years and they ended up hiring her and sponsoring her hmm. for a while. Like that, that was kind of her posture all along. And so she pushed me to just like do something. And so she kind of like told me, you know, would get me involved with different things. I remember her signing me up wildly to pick up, you know, day old bread and stuff from like a Panera Publix at like four or 5 a.m. to go bring it to the food bank or something as like a high schooler. And so that, that's basically all I did. I did some of that. I hung out at the house a lot and just kind of held out until college. Well, eventually you did go off to college. How did that happen, especially as someone who didn't really go to high school? Yep. And what was that experience like for you? Yeah, it, it was, I would say, very uninformed. <laughs> <laughs> I did not have uh, any guidance in terms of how that worked. I didn't understand the resources or maybe even the assets that I had. Even as a damaged tennis player, I did not realize that I was able to use that to get into a good school and get scholarships. Just was not aware of it. Because I think I was still stuck in the mindset that if we went to college, not test up the pro circuit, it was a failure. So what was the point of anything? And so for me, going to college was really, I had a friend that was going to a small school in Nashville, Tennessee, and I really didn't know what else to do. And I went and visited the school with him once and kind of just was like, I, I guess this is what you do next. I don't know. And that was the only school I applied to. And that's where I went. It's a small school in Nashville, Tennessee, you've never heard of. Very not selective. Um, uh, Yeah, so it wasn't much. It was a very simple process. And so what was that first job then out of, excuse me, out of school? So I was a social worker right out of undergrad. I will give credit as a maybe unimpressive undergrad as it was. The one culture piece that did string back to maybe my mom was there was a heavy volunteerism kind of culture. And so through that, I got more involved into stuff on campus. And then so that led to that first job after undergrad where I was a social worker. So I worked for about two years as a case manager, working with folks experiencing chronic homelessness and mental health disorders, substance use disorders, a lot of vets, a lot of families, a lot of individuals, mostly in the national community. So you're in your early 20s, right out of undergrad doing case management for these folks who are pretty vulnerable, yep. going through a lot. How did that feel? Yeah, that was wild, right? Your early 20s, supposedly helping folks, you know, 
many of them twice your age, but absolutely at the margins of society, right? So I think that era, I grew up incredibly fast because you, you know, I wasn't properly trained uh, in social work without an MSW or a degree, just thrown into the fire and it really is you know, survive or drown. And so for me, yeah, I, just, I think I just grew up super fast. It's kind of the, the takeaway from that era. I think grew strong interest in that space. I also, for me, it wasn't really much about continuity in terms of like, these are the values outside of tennis that my mom raised me on. And this job really fit that. But it was difficult because I saw some wild things there and ended up burning out, you know, just two years into it. For folks who might not be as familiar, what are some things that people might not know or that might be surprising? About that experience? Yeah. 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 Or about social work in general. It's a grind. People think IB is a grind. <laughs> oh my gosh. This was, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty traumatic at times. I would say maybe an example of something that was pretty extreme. I, I broke up like a knife fight once, right? Where it was like straight up out of a movie. I'm talking like blood spattering on windows and wild ambulance stories. So I won't go into that gory detail, but I think, I'm trying to think what might not, what else might be difficult to understand from that. I, I think maybe I walked away from that thinking, we, we struggle with some of the policies. This is, this is a long-standing issue, right? In the US, in big cities, I feel like right now SF has a reputation of struggling with this, but every big city has this challenge. And I think I probably walked away with thinking that we probably, don't have the best policies in place to handle some of these issues. I think a lot of my clients were typically treated as through the criminal system. And I think I stepped away more looking at these challenges, much more of a healthcare, mental mm -hmm. health system. And so I think that was the gap that I saw walking away from it. But I also burnt out because I feel like I didn't see a pathway to where that was going to move in that direction. And so I just straight up left at one point. I, I left. I went, to a, I went to a farm for a summer. <laughs> as, we, as we all do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. why the farm? Yeah, so I had this long-standing interest around agriculture, gardening, had a bit of a green thumb, and it was more of a hobby. I even remember going to like a sustainable ag conference for fun. I had met someone there who was taking on summer apprentices, right? And so I'm not sure if folks have heard of this program called like Woofing, W-W-O-O-F. So it stands for Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. So this is like a worldwide network where farm labor, laborers can come and exchange basically work for urban board. It's like kind of a fun way to travel. It's kind of a hippie way to travel. <laughs> and so initially I was doing that, but then once I found this one farm I went to, I ended up deciding to stay for like a whole season. And is that what sparked this interest in the environment and sustainability? I think that really took it to the next level. It went yeah. from like hobby to I really wanted to explore this mm. more. Mm. But I would, yeah, so I spent the whole summer there, came back to Nashville, but didn't understand how to you know, turn this into a profession. But that definitely was a big step up in terms of like, okay, this is interesting. I would like to pursue it more. And then how did you pursue it more? Yeah, so I think from there on, there's a bit of a gap before I came to my first master's degree, which is also at Duke. And there were kind of two things going on there. I didn't want to go back to social work. My job that I left, I actually took a leave of absence and they were kind of like, are you coming back or not? 
So I decided not to do that. But I didn't have like a clear path to make this career pivot change. At the same time, my sister was becoming like a single mother. So my dad, I think, also realized post tennis career, he kind of missed out on some of I think our upbringing, and so asked me to help kind of start a family business. And so there were two streams. One was to help start a family business to basically free him up. So he would have more time to come visit us. He was still living in Hong Kong at the time, and we we're in the U.S. And then also pursuing this sustainability angle. But at the same time, you know, having gone to a pretty insignificant school, I had no idea what that meant in terms of a career pivot. So in this gap, I was basically working two or three part-time jobs and standing up a business from scratch. Well, tell us more about the real estate business. I know that's a an area of interest for a lot of our MBA classmates, yeah. but how, <laughs> how did you even get started with something that I imagine seems so foreign and so daunting yeah. and challenging? Yeah, so I had no background in real estate, to be clear. And so with that original kind of problem of, or challenge of uh, just staying a family business to free up some family time, we looked at different things. Like my dad at one point was like, hey, Uncle and Auntie so and so in Walnut Creek, California. They've got a little deli shop. How, what do you think about flying out there, testing it out, running it for a month or two, and then like, what if we bought it and you just ran it? Like that was like his first idea. I was like, that is nuts. You didn't do it then. <laughs> no. Um, and so I was like, you know, I, you know, I was a little bit lost clearly, but still was like looking for you know what this pivot was going to be. But I wasn't ready to make that move, and so we kept looking for different things that might work. And so I will give him credit in terms of identifying real estate where at this point, this is a decade ago now, right? 2013, we're good ways beyond the 08-09 financial crisis that was driven by housing. So we're kind of above that floor, but home prices were still wildly depressed. And so he just threw out the idea like, do you know anyone in real estate? And so I did loosely know a few folks in Nashville and started talking to folks and ended up finding someone really through a roommate, a roommate's relative that was a contractor. And so I just started asking him a bunch of questions, connected him with the family, and we were just starting to you know, brainstorm of what that might look like. And so we just started with one house, one project. This is a very different era. The first home we ever bought was $37,000. And so the, the, the risk was much lower than now. And so we bought a house from a hoarder, and <laughs> incredible, I mean, stacked to the top. And bought a house from a hoarder, renovated it into a rental. I heavily leaned on my new contractor friend to run everything and just kind of watched and learned. And so once this project was done, got it rented out and kind of circled back with my dad and realized like, numbers are pretty good. You know, we're not like experts by any means, but this works towards our goals of giving him some more freedom, you know? And so that was project one and we just kept doing a couple more every few months and just kept doing that. Well, what gave you the confidence to say, I can learn this and do this and be successful in this instead of at the beginning saying, oh no, I don't know anything about this. This doesn't seem like something that's for me. I think for me, the challenge of not having a strong network out of undergrad and not having a, a illustrious career out of undergrad, I really depended on actually my, my tennis career. The, the one thing I've always carried from it since is just understanding how to trial and error things and how to get from like A to B and how to problem solve and how to just 
make incremental improvements. And so although I didn't understand anything about real estate, I knew I could always just like learn incrementally every day with questions. I just, that was my thing. And so I think I realized I figured out, okay, if there, I have nothing else, I know how to learn. I can learn to learn. Now this is where we might be a little bit different because if my dad asked me to start a business with him, my reaction would be, hell no. <laughs> how was it working with family? Yeah, it has, you know, <laughs> this is being recorded. <laughs> so I was, yeah, I was pretty resistant at first. I will say it's turned out pretty well. However, early on, you imagine the context. I'm coming out of a pretty, I think, rough period of life in terms of, you know, parents separating, in terms of not going to a great school, being slightly lost in my career. And like in that moment is when you're asking me to help you out, right? It's like, I don't even know what I'm doing. And so I was pretty resistant at first. So for, I feel like for the first few months, I would just kind of give him like the bare minimum to keep him happy, to you know not strain the relationship anymore. But however, I think oddly, this business between he and I turned out to be in the platform that has kind of made us super close. Because over the years, we've worked on so many things together. I've had to communicate with him so much. And so that kind of gave us a common area to talk about something that was maybe not family related, but it gave us a platform to really, I think, reconcile a lot of the family challenges mm -hmm. as well in that relationship. Awesome. Well, let's fast forward a little bit to when yep. you came to Duke the first time yep. for the MEM. Yep. How did that happen? Yeah. So, you know, so as these two things are going, real estate business standing up, you know, working like three part-time jobs to just explore ag, I wanted to take it a little bit further. And so the thing that really made that pivot was coming to the Nicholas School at Duke for the first time. So this is 2016 and 2018. I really felt like I needed some professional credentials to be legitimate. Because at this point, it's just, you're just a random kid with two or three part-time jobs and a faux family business, you know? <laughs> like, it's making some money. Yeah, <laughs> but like, who's gonna, you know? I was like, I have no idea. And so I came to the Nicholas School really with the intention of exploring. I, I knew I wanted to do something around sustainability. At that point, it was ag, but I, I had some, I think, difficult, challenging mentors in that space in Nashville, so I wanted to get out of ag. So I wanted to broaden it to just generally speaking, something around the environment. And so for me, the Nicholas School, I mean, there's like 50, 60 professors, experts across everything from forestry, water, energy, policy, whatever it is. And so I really looked at that as a playground. And I mean, it was shocking. I felt like I, I don't know, felt like I kind of came home for the first time because the amount of resources at Duke, the professors, the classes, the learnings, I mean, I was not, I had no idea this world even existed. I think before that, I would be listening to podcasts or seeing folks, you know, interesting things in the news or reading about this new startup or that. And I always felt so far away. I never felt like I had any access to that, right? And I think once I got on this side of Duke and I was like, oh, that's my professor on the news or that's my professor who was one of the co-lead authors on the IPCC report. Like, it was wild. But at the same time, I mean, it was like extreme imposter syndrome. Here I am, basically a ninth, ninth grade high school dropout <laughs> with a no-name undergrad and a crappy resume. I lived in a house with five roommates, and my roommates, I mean, they went to undergrads at like 
Yale, Dartmouth, and like all these fancy places, and I'm just like, yeah, I don't, I don't belong, right? That was kind of the the mindset. Was I never felt maybe worthy of like a Duke before that, and so I think those two years was very much focused on exploring and just proving myself because I. I kind of wanted to prove it to myself that you know it was a mistake for Duke to let me in. Well, I wanted to ask you about that too. We talk a lot about imposter syndrome here at Fuqua yeah. and in other spaces. How did you push through that? Oh, just grind. <laughs> <laughs> I think for me, you know, if you if you find my Nick school friends from that era, they're going to be like Brian worked too much, hands down. We had some kind of joke superlatives at the end of our second year. They were all across the board, and the one I was nominated for. There was this one called "Most Likely to Be Found in the in the Research Lab with Their Model Still Running but Dead." <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I was in that group where I was just working extremely hard, and so I know it didn't make sense to some of my friends at the time, but I knew for myself that I did not have any of the pedigree that they came from, and so I had to prove myself. And the only way I understood how the time was really reaching back into my tennis days. I knew how to improve, and the only way to improve is through reps, practice, and just push through things. So I think I took a lot of like discipline from tennis and just applied it to that. Is that why you didn't go to shooters at all during the MEM? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then you graduated in 2018 yep. and did a lot of really cool, interesting work in the next few years before coming back to Fuqua. Do you want to share a little bit about? Not only the work that you did, but also how you taught yourself three programming languages. Yeah, so I, I think during the Nick school, I was you know just blown away by the the resources. I thought I was going to pick something like energy or water or conservation or something and just go with it. I found myself not being able to pick one because it was all quite interesting. And so the bet I made was I also kind of fell in love with the data science side of it, and so I used that. As the tool to access all these different things, and so my post next school era is really focused on kind of environmental climate data science. And I spent a couple years working on the maritime space, spent some time at a startup doing climate risk, and then went up, went to the DOE. But the the constant theme there is that data science. And in terms of like learning three languages, coding, yeah, that just goes back to the grind of the next school era. I just made sure I had projects in that space, and I don't know. You just learn. It sounds like you finally stumbled upon something that you love to do, that you're good at, that is more respected and more prestigious. Why then say, you know what? I had a great time at Duke. I want to go back again for the sequel and do this whole business thing. For sure. So the itch for B school came in the startup. So after I left that project, I was at a climate risk kind of like startup called Jupiter Intelligence. And I found myself reporting to like our chief product officer, and my job is really about translating these very complicated scientific models, looking at extreme weather risk, whether it's flooding, hail, extreme heat, whatever it might be, into data products that clients in financial services or in government so they could consume. Oftentimes, this would be used in like kind of basically risk profiling, right? And doing all that. Difficult modeling work. I found that my chief product officer had all the fun with it. He was able to really, I think, drive where things were going and make much more big decisions. And I was like, "How do I get your job?" And I think I looked around and realized for our startup, it was 
series, post-series B at the time, all of our leadership went to like a good business school. And it just kind of hit me in the moment. I was like, I think, is this a club that I wasn't invited to? I, yeah, I just didn't know. And so that was the initial inkling. I definitely fought the idea because I had this MEM, had a good career. Data science is amazing job security. So I was like, fine. I was finally, you know, especially coming from my background, this was amazing. You said you were thinking about pursuing a PhD. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a time, yeah, I almost signed with, with Duke for a PhD at the Nicholas School. I love them, but honestly, also, it was probably the best decision of my life to not sign. <laughs> probably still working on it. <laughs> and so I think for me, the coming back was about not being able to scratch that itch, realizing that at the startup, my ambition was growing, my confidence was growing, that imposter syndrome from before coming from literally nothing and being a dropout to being like, I would really be interested in helping run a company like this or build a company like this one day. And just seeing what the gaps were between me and them. And to me, one of those things was a B-school education and a good program. And so that's what I focused on after I joined the startup at a relatively challenging time during COVID. So when I went to the DOE, it was a much more, much more work-life balanced situation. And so I spent my spare time basically building up my real estate business and applying to business schools. And so for me, coming back to business school meant really two things was exploring some of these uh, climate technologies, but also looking at just the biggest levers of impact I could think of for the energy transitions. Because I started in my spare time, I think just listening to a bunch of podcasts and I really settled on the innovation piece, but also uh, climate finance and energy finance. And so I think those are the two things of why I felt I needed to come back. I think also though, it probably made more sense for me to do like a, an accelerated MBA one-year program. However, given my track record, I felt finally comfortable enough in my career to where I was like, I wanted to also just enjoy myself a little bit. And so even though the ROI and it was more efficient to do an accelerated program or an executive program, I chose a daytime just for the full experience. Well, you also got to do your summer internship, which, as we all know, was investment banking. <laughs> yes. And again, you were a former social worker and, and all yeah. the things that we just talked about. Absolutely. I won't even ask you about why investment banking, because you talked about being interested in the energy finance yep. piece. But was it a difficult decision for you? Did you ever think about or worry about being a yeah. sellout? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was difficult. I think it was challenging the whole period because for recruiting where I, there were multiple times I thought about bouncing, jumping ship not just because of my own thought processes, but I would get some feedback about, wow, this is bizarre. I still remember being at the Morgan Stanley Super Day, being interviewed by two MDs, and one of them, he's like, looked at my resume and said, shit, dude, I don't think I've ever seen a social worker trying to become an investment banker. <laughs> and, you know, so I would get that feedback a lot where it was a bizarre, bizarre journey. But I think for me, it came back to, I had such an extreme upbringing I was more than comfortable with such an extreme journey, like moving forward, because I just didn't have the opportunity to make, to explore a lot of these things during undergrad and early career. And so I, I saw it as fundamentally about an impact on the energy transitions. I saw finance as one key lever. And when I looked at all the energy finance, climate finance options, I felt like this opportunity would provide the most impact 
but also the most options in the future. And so I think that's kind of why I went with it. Because I feel pretty comfortable that I know who I am, that even if it looks like I'm selling out, I feel pretty okay about it. Well, that, may, that, may, that, that makes me wonder, because we're talking about reinventing yourself today. How do you balance reinventing yourself with staying true to who you are? Yeah. I feel like the MBA application process really forces you to think about this, right? I remember looking through that string and seeing that same thing that that Morgan Stanley MD saw was, this is not just a whiny journey, it's insane. It is all over it. Is there any theme whatsoever? And I think for me, it's been pretty simple. A lot of my values came from my mom in terms of wanting to contribute to society. I tie that back to her volunteerism. And you can see that, I think for me, in social work was so explicit, but in the family business and real estate, that's ultimately about helping my family. And then after that, from sustainable ag all the way through energy finance, it was basically my obsession with climate and environment. And so that to me has been the key theme that drives me. And I think I'm pretty comfortable with knowing myself in terms of like, that's, that's what drives me. And so I didn't have the, like I mentioned, the opportunities to explore these things earlier. So I'm kind of exploring them later, which kind of, I think, forces me to reinvent myself multiple times really quickly to figure out what it is I want to do. Well, I think we're all glad that you're here in the daytime program and not the accelerated that you that, that you get that you get to explore. You finally get to go to shooters. Yeah, you get to have some of the fun that that maybe you didn't get to have as much in the MEA when you were when you were grinding. You started seeing someone at the end of last school year. Yes. Can you share how you and Emma met? Yeah. You know, I have apparently everything to thank IB for. So Emma and I met at a, an IV birthday party. So shout out to Julian, thank you. Julian Gulig, I remember she mentioning her birthday party. I remember this being towards right spring of their year two or year one and not having made a ton of second year friends. And so I remember getting the invite and looking through the invite list and literally only seeing yourself and I as the first years. And I was like, oh, this is nuts. But I was like, okay, Julian's a cool second year. I should probably go. And so I remember actually messaging you about going, you were going later and I was like, okay, that's cool. So I set up going early and showing up to a house of second years, didn't know many people and just started talking to people and yeah, we just hit it off right, right away. Immediately. Yeah. It was weird. And that, and, that, and, that, and that was it. Then it was. Yeah. Well, you know, I think at that point uh, you're not totally sure, right? But we ended up going out on our first date two days later. Yeah, respects. <laughs> uh, we went to this little taco shop in the back of the market somewhere. I can't even remember. And then moved over to Queenie's. And that first day, we talked like six hours straight. Nice. And I knew right away that I had a problem on my hand. <laughs> <laughs> and she actually decided to stay this year instead of yeah. going to Austin like she originally planned. Yeah, I am eternally thankful for her for that. So I owe her. Incredible. Well, we're in second year right now. How are you thinking about how you want to reinvent yourself moving forward into the future? Mm. Or is, is this it? Are, are you good now? No. So I think I will always be reinventing myself to some degree, but I also feel that I finally like arrived, right? I think that imposter syndrome is always going to be there. I think that chip on my shoulder about being a high school dropout will always be there and probably keep me in check but I feel a lot more comfortable about where I'm going. Now it's just about like refinement. I think I'm st 
still obsessed with the energy transitions, energy finance, with climate tech startups. All these things are just so fun to me. I think what I learned from real estate is early on it was a chore, but it became something I fell in love with too because I was helping out family. And the more I worked on it, the less it felt like work. It was just became fun. So in the same way I view this reinventing myself in the future, it's I know the industries I will be in. I will always have my real estate business. I will always be around the energy transitions and climate tech. But now it's just about fine tuning. So I think it's a lot easier. I think looking forward, there'll be I think hopefully less drastic moves. I don't see foresee that coming. But I think I'll always lean on like you know having a, a slightly odd upbringing has I think created slightly different strengths. So I'll just lean on those. And when I've described you today, we talked about being a social worker, being an investment banker. What other ways would you want to describe yourself moving forward? What kind of person do you want to be? Oh, I think pretty simple. My values from my mom, I mentioned about volunteerism, have always pushed me to just leave the world a little better place than you left, you know, came in with it, right? And then on my dad's side, I think that's where I get my ambition from. He comes from poverty in Hong Kong, from an era when Hong Kong was less, you know, flourishing. There are stories when he grew up, I mean, five, six, seven people in a four or five hundred square foot apartment. They even have beds. I still remember him telling me stories about growing up, sleeping on pull-out cots. His life has been much more about how do we get out of this poverty. And that ambition is like tied to that. I feel very much like the fusion of both of them. There is that volunteerism and that interest to make the world a better place, but I'm also driven to do well. And so I think for me looking forward, like what those labels are, I think it's literally just the crossroads of that. Well, I think I can speak for all of us when we say we can't wait to see what happens next. Thank you again, Brian, so much for, for speaking with us today.